loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Miriam Feldman. Miriam's an artist, writer, and mental health activist who splits her time between her Los Angeles atelier and her farm in rural Washington state. She's been married to her husband, Craig O'Rourke, also a successful artist, for 34 years, and they have four adult children. Their 33-year-old son, Nick, has schizophrenia. With an MFA in painting from Otis Art Institute, Miriam founded DeMar Feldman Studios Incorporated, a wildly successful mural and decorative art company in 1988. With a clientele of business and entertainment elite in Los Angeles and abroad, her work can be found everywhere from Wolfgang Puck's Spago Beverly Hills to Jay Leno's Beverly Hills Home. Her work's been commissioned by William Shatner, Faye Dunaway, Patricia Heaton, among others. DFS's work has been published in Elle Decor, Architectural Digest, Harper's Bazaar, and People Magazine. At the same time, Miriam built a strong career as a fine artist. She's represented by Hamilton Galleries in Santa Monica, has a long list of collectors. When Nick was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 2004, Miriam became an activist and a writer with firsthand knowledge of the woeful state of our mental health system. She decided to be an advocate for those who have no voice. She serves on the advisory board of Bring Change to Mind, Glenn Close's organization, and writes a monthly blog for the website Bring Change to Mind. Miriam's active in leadership at NAMI Washington, and her stories featured on the cover of their current and this is uh, July 2020, National Newsletter. She's a frequent guest on mental health podcasts and is active on Instagram, where she's building a community of family and loved ones dealing with mental illness. She's also the author of He Came In With It, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness, and we'll largely be talking about that today. Welcome, Miriam. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Oh, okay. Welcome. I'm very happy to have you. <laughs> Wasn't sure I had you. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to start by saying that uh, your your book is amazing, and I know it's it's just coming out around now. Uh, yeah, very, the pub date was yesterday. Yesterday, right. So um, mm. I'm very happy to have you so soon after publication, and I know promoting a book right now is not the easiest thing in the world. So I hope I can be a small part of getting the word out about this book because I, I, I guess where I want to start is I just felt as if I, I got to immerse myself in what it, you know, obviously not as much as you uh, or other people who experienced this, but kind of immerse myself in the experience of having someone severely mentally ill in your family. Uh, Of course, I've dealt with mental illness in my profession, but there's such a different experience uh, with family. So thank you for your 
deep sharing? Well, it. Uh, I decided when I sat down to write this that it would be meaningless if I wasn't just completely honest. And so I tried to just put it down as it happened and tell the story. And sometimes what's... Uh, hard about being fully honest I feel you handled so elegantly um, pointing out our own mistakes in a way Um, the things we do that don't help and of course we all do things that don't help all the time but um, it's so um, glaring when you're dealing with a situation like your son's illness and uh, I felt you made all the natural mistakes, <laughs> if, if that's a way well, to put it. I, yeah, I did make all of them, that's for sure. You know, <laughs> serious mental illness is like a gale force hurricane that blows through your life, leaving anything that's not nailed down just gone. And um, everything turned upside down. Everything I thought I knew, I didn't know anymore, and I really kind of had to start from scratch. And there was, in a sense, something positive about that, because I stopped wasting time on superfluous things. I only attended to things that were important, and the whole odyssey really changed my outlook on things. But, you know, I had spent decades, really, um, raising my kids and worrying about car accidents and child abductions, and then out of left field came mental illness, and it just wasn't something I had even thought about. You know, it wasn't in my family, and it just wasn't on the horizon for me. So I really I really had to scramble to educate myself. Well, and also, uh, I don't think I'm assuming too much, having read the book, to say that your uh, your life was quite successful. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to make it as an artist in L.A., right? And you yes, and your husband... Is. You and your husband had both succeeded, and and that can, when we succeed at hard things, uh, it can make us feel a little invincible sometimes. Uh, I don't know if that was a part. I've pretty much been able to succeed at everything I've tried, and, um, you know, I'm a hard worker, and I don't give up, and that really in a sense, worked against me in all of this because I just got stuck there. I could not get past the fact that I couldn't fix this. And I think I wasted a lot of energy. And it was a long time till I came to any kind of acceptance. And it was only then that I started being able to attend to it in a positive way. You know, I was, I was um, likening that part of it to uh, how long it took me. Uh, my wife was sick for 10 years before she died. And uh, it, where I was at the beginning of that time, what, there's no comparison to where I was at the end of that time. And, and part of what led to all the changes was this constantly shifting landscape. You know, there it wasn't like I could stand steady on any one thing. And that really stood out with you and your son, too, that uh, uh, eventually you had to actually accept that you didn't know what was going to happen next, I feel. 
And yes, uh, that's absolutely. that that is a big thing to accept. Uh, I know from a different experience, but uh, uh, similarly wrenching that it takes yeah, a long time to know, accept I, that. It does. But I feel like it's a gift in a way. It gives you a certain amount of strength. Um, you know, I stumbled into practicing yoga and meditating just because it was close and convenient and I wanted to get some exercise. And that really transformed the way I thought and the way I behaved. You know, the teachings of yoga was not something that I was particularly interested in, but it seeped in. And the whole idea of acceptance and surrender was life-changing for me because, you know, I'm kind of a type A person and I'm big on achievement. And to me, the idea of surrender surrender equals failure. I mean, surrender means you lost. You lost the war. You put up the white right. flag. And I learned that there's a whole other meaning to it, and that meaning really comes from strength and intelligence. You know, I was throwing myself up against a brick wall that wasn't going to be affected by me over and over and over again. And the knowledge that I shouldn't do that anymore and the ability to accept and surrender to what was and what I couldn't change actually strengthened me in a lot of ways. I I don't know if you've encountered the idea of post-traumatic growth. I talk about it a lot on this uh, on this program. And you're exactly uh, describing it because the pain doesn't, you know, and the losses are what they are, but the things that strengthen us in us as a result, the ways that we grow, we wouldn't want to let go of those. Uh, well, you know, so- I always say I um, never in a million years would have done it at the cost of my son's health. But this whole experience has made me a better person. I'm a much better person now. I'm stronger. I'm more compassionate. I'm more patient. I'm, you know, I'm, it, the end result for me as a person has been one of improvement. And that's, that's what I say about my biggest loss as well. And many other people I've interviewed on this show would, would say the mm-hmm. same. But uh, one thing that really... I, I was I was contemplating a lot as I was reading um, is how hard it would be to, you know, I have three kids. Um, and although I've always been clear that I wasn't in charge of who they ended up becoming, um, there was a kind of, I can look back now and see there was a continuous thread uh, that they were this certain person and they just got better and better at being that person in the world. But for mm-hmm. you, but for you, that is not what happened. Um, I'm sure there are aspects of your son, Nick, that are recognizable, but I, I feel as if you had to accept that he was no longer able to be that person you knew when he was young, when he was little. Is that fair to say? You know, that was one of, yes, and that was one of the most painful aspects of it. You know, when you lose somebody, you can grieve them, and there's a closure. I know that's a word everybody loves. There's a finality to it, you know. Um, This is 
he was he's still standing there right in front of me and yet not there anymore and there's almost a cruel joke aspect to schizophrenia because there your kid is and he looks the same and you know mm. he's breathing and he's healthy but he's gone and so you you but you can't fully grieve the loss because he's not really gone so you're in this terrible limbo and this is something that now that I'm an advocate and I've talked to you know dozens and dozens of mothers this is one of the hardest things to contend with is the fact that you've lost them but you haven't lost them so you can't truly grieve and it takes a lot of thought and understanding to get to the point where you allow yourself to grieve it like a loss and then move forward mm. Yes, I, I I feel that that uh, this place in your book I'd like you to share uh, sh- kind of talks about this a little bit the the part that you're calling beginning um, because it talks about looking back and and did you miss something or was there just a turn in the road Would you share that Yes, absolutely. So this is the actual. Um, it's the actual beginning of the book. It's not called beginning, but I labeled it that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess there were signs. There had to have been signs. I missed them all. So where does this story begin? Damned if I know exactly. I had me a son. I had a fat little baby boy with a mouth like a rubber band. My husband Craig and I surfed the labor waves together like champs. When my son came out of me, the room was oddly hushed. He was my first, so I didn't know what to expect. But it sure was quiet in there. No slap and cry, no nothing. Nick was blue and cold when he was born. We waited in the delivery room for his inaugural wail and heard only silence. Don't worry, dear, the nurse said. We just have to warm him up a bit. They placed him in an apparatus that looked like a toaster oven. Everything in the room seemed cold and frozen. My husband and I each held our breath, and finally our son took his first, and we let ours out. I had my boy, deep, dark eyes and a serious composure, all the fingers, all the toes. We named him Samuel, as we had planned, and then after a day or two, Craig and I renamed him Nicholas, Nick. I'd had a beloved uncle with that name, so that was fine with me. Craig gave him the middle name Dylan after Bob. Nick, a normal, healthy boy. He was strong. He was adorable. And his future was as as bright as the goddamn sun. I would loll around and stare at that future of his like a baby myself, entranced with jangling keys. Now, Nick sits in a dark room all day, each day. And I wonder, what is he thinking? Who is in there? I see how people look at him. I can read my family's faces. I know what has happened to him is a tragedy. But to me, he is in there, and his future is still ablaze, alone in his filthy apartment that I try to keep clean. It was a soft white afternoon on Ridgewood Place. Saturdays were generally quiet. An occasional dog would bark, but hours could go by without so much as the sound of a slow-moving car. A pleasant melancholy settled in on the weekends. Walking a few houses up the street to collect Nick from a play date with his friend Jack, I felt an overall sense of goodness and well-being. 
We had managed to buy our first house in Larchmont Village, an idyllic neighborhood of Los Angeles. I was a working artist. I had a handsome husband, and we had a darling son and another baby on the way. We seemed to belong perfectly in this venerable neighborhood, where generations of family had deep roots in old homes. All was going as planned. It had rained. As I walked out, the sun came out, throwing long shadows and a crispness in the air. Everything felt fresh. With each step, wet leaves underfoot, the sidewalk felt comfortable. I was on my block. I was in my life. My neighbor's porch was still dripping. Nick was waiting for me on the steps with Jack and his mother, Bridget. We chatted for a minute, and then I took his hand, and we began down the sidewalk. Did you have fun, Nick boy? Was it a good day, I asked. Yeah, we lined up all the toys, the little ones. They stretched all around the living room. He loved to do that, make long domino-like trails of objects winding through the rooms of the house. He also utilized endless quantities of tape to sculpt airplanes and monsters. He made them out of clay sometimes, too. Well, that sounds good, I said. Ma, what's the thing about shadows, he asked, squinting into the sun. The thing? I mean, like right now, my shadow is really long, but it changes all the time. Why? We stopped for a minute, and I crouched down. You know how the earth revolves around the sun, so in the morning the sun rises, then it moves across the sky and sets on the other side? Yes. In the morning, our shadows stretch in one direction as the sun moves up and across, so they get longer and longer, like now. I pointed to our lengthy shapes on the cement, stretching into the rich amber light. I stood up, and we continued walking. Isn't it wonderful, Nikki, the way our shadows are always with us? They're like our best friends. Isn't that a lovely thing? My four-year-old looked up at me with his endless brown eyes and smiled. Yes, he said. And when we die, we will go into our shadows. At the time, I marveled at what a profound thought that was. Surely this was evidence that he was no ordinary child. He was some kind of savant with the soul and vision of an adult. This child was destined to do important things. And I was a young mother filled with the hubris of inexperience. What I love about that in particular is the idea that when something happens, like happened with your son, it causes you to look back on things and almost uh, rewrite them in your mind. Um, and I and I want to talk about that, that sense of looking back, because, of course, that would be a truly beautiful moment. I'm thinking of moments like that I had with my kids when they were young um, that brought kind of a sense of pride and wonder and then to mm -hmm. kind of think, but that, but was that a sign um, that could really jangle your mind around? So after this break that's coming up, let's let's talk about that a little bit more. Okay. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Miriam Feldman, go to miriam-feldman.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. 
Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Miriam Feldman, the author of He Came In With It, and Miriam, um, before the break, we were just beginning to talk about this sense of kind of uh, reviewing history, uh, your own personal history with Nick, to try to see what you might have missed. But as someone whose kids didn't grow up to be, um, to have a mental illness, as as far as as we're aware of at the moment, and they're um, past the usual point for this particular illness, um, I would have interpreted things very much the way that you did, like that that scene you just read. Uh, I would have thought how wonderful, you know, how beautiful, and it would probably have been a memory I looked back on with with some sense of of awe, uh, and many other memories that I thought about as I was reading that that you were now left to question all of them in a way. Uh, and I wonder... Well, it's true. I ended up questioning my whole life. You know, I, um, the first thing that you do is you, well, you want to know why this happened, what caused it. And I've spent many a night, and I still occasionally do, even now, lying in bed doing a forensic audit of his entire life, my entire life, trying to figure out what was the moment? You know, why did this happen? What was the sign that I missed? And again, that goes back to the surrender thing. Of, I've, I've released myself from that pretty much now. But for many years, that's all it was, is just trying to figure out what had done it and, and, and remembering him falling over and hitting his head. Or, you know. and, and then as he got older, there were definitely things in his teenage years that had I known what I know now, I would have been able to recognize as danger signs. But, you know, 
If you were to make the list of red flags for serious mental illness and you were to make the list of normal teenage behavior, you're going to have basically the same list. So it's <laughs> yes. very confusing. You know, they're mercurial, they're oppositional, they're moody, they're, they're flighty, you know. And, and so Self-destructive years, sometimes. Yes, yes. <laughs> for years we just thought, okay, you know, this is what teenagers are like. And, um, and now I look back and there are things that I can definitely identify. So how do you differentiate those two things? Uh, you well, know, the, on the one hand, just sort of, uh, I, I mean, I can remember thinking, uh, you know, with my kids, what did you do with my beautiful girl? They all happen to be yeah. girls, right? <laughs> but Well, the uh, girls are the tough ones. You know, I have been known to say I'd rather have another son with schizophrenia than another teenage girl. <laughs> <laughs> that's, they that's, bring you to your knees. <laughs> <laughs> and we will talk about your teenage girls in, you know, in a little bit. But uh, what are these things that you think, oh, looking back, that was a sign? That that are different. Well, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things that you know could have been or would have you know that probably are nothing. But there are certain very clear things. For instance, when he was about sixteen, he had broken up with a girlfriend, and he was very sad. And I was sitting on his bed, and he was lying on his bed and telling me how bad he felt. And at the end of the conversation, he said to me. You know, I just have these weird thoughts, these bad thoughts, like voices in my head. And I launched into, you know, mom talk number 37B, telling him, (laughs) you know, everybody has weird thoughts. Don't worry about what you think about. You know, you can't feel guilty for your thoughts. You know, what matters is what you do and how you conduct yourself, which would have been perfectly applicable for 99.9% of the kids. But I look back on that now and I think, was he telling me he was starting to hear voices, you know? Right. And I missed that, you know, and, and not only did I miss that, but I told him it, it was irrelevant and it didn't matter. So things like that, uh, those, are, those are things that really stand out to me. And so uh, faced with, you know, I think there's a real temptation as a parent. I've certainly expen- experienced it to when something's a little scary that your kid says try to redirect it as a po- as opposed to ask a question or and of course questions don't work all that well at that age anyway <laughs> in my experience and so i i could so put myself in your shoes uh kind of uh seeing it almost metaphorically and then later thinking wait he probably really was talking about something quite real and that, well, yes, and you know, I have a lot of mothers who have said, you know, who said, this totally resonates for any mom. I mean, it's a pretty universal experience. The, the end place where we ended up with Nick is not going to be where everybody ends up with their kid, but it's, it's parenting. You know, it's, that's what it is. And it's true. You do lean towards normalizing. And then what happened to me afterwards is then I was watching my girls, you know, watching every move and thinking, you know, is that something? Is that? And so I went from uh-huh. one extreme to the other. Absolutely. I, I'd like you to share a little more from the book and, and this particular section, uh, you know, you did something so natural too, assuming that he was a rebellious teenager, which is kind of uh, batting down the hatches 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine how how ineffective that would be, uh, given the nature of what was going on with him. Would you would you share well, that? At this point, yes, I will. At this point, the fight, Nick had cut his wrist, and that was the turning point. Now, you know, he didn't almost die or anything. Actually, the doctors deemed it what they call an inauthentic attempt. But in a way, that really didn't help any because it also enabled us to normalize it when it wasn't. But, you know, at that point, he had started to see a therapist and things were getting really bad in the house. Um, And, uh, you know, his older sister was in college, but I had two little girls at home and he, he had done this thing and cut his wrist and he was grounded and home and staying close. And so this is the fight. After Nick cut his wrist, Craig and I agreed that he would be on lockdown indefinitely. One night he was climbing the walls, pacing all around the room. Mom, can't I just go meet Jenny for a coffee? He was breathing unevenly. His eyes were bright. I was terrified all the time. I was no longer able to be a good mother to make good decisions because I was always in fight or flight mode, just trying to keep things from blowing up. Strategies evaporated. Promises to my husband to be tougher just melted away. No, definitely not. You know the rules. Even at that point, I knew I was going to cave. He looked like he might combust. A thin sheen of sweat shone on his forehead, and he was flicking his forefinger and thumb on his left hand frantically. You don't understand. I'm freaking out. I just need some air. I don't know what I'm going to do. We both looked at his wrist. And there it was, the thing that terrified me most. I didn't know what he might do. And giving in seemed like the only way to reduce the risk of him harming himself. I led him to go see Jenny. When Craig learned, he was furious. I cannot believe you let him go, Miriam. We agreed on this. You never back me up. When Nick got back from seeing Jenny, he and Craig had the predictable confrontation in the dining room. After Craig rebuked him, Nick pushed him in the chest. Craig stumbled backward, knocking a picture off the wall. From there, it devolved into a terrible, violent fight with hitting and furniture flying. Father and son circling each other in battle. Father hitting mother as she intervenes. Mother screaming for them to stop. All of this in front of the girls. To this day, I feel sick when I think of that night. I know I shouldn't have let Nick go without talking to Craig first, and doing so ignited a fire I couldn't control. Rose and Lucy did exactly what they saw people on TV do. They called 911. I was mortified. Nick, Craig, and I were still screaming when the girls told us they had called. Immediately, I tried to undo what had been done. I grabbed the phone and hit redial. Hi, hello, this is Mrs. O'Rourke. My daughter's just called you. Everything's fine over here, I said, trying to laugh. It's all just a terrible misunderstanding. It's all over now. Everything is fine. I was politely informed that once a call for domestic violence had been made, the police were required to investigate. I scurried around, cleaning the place up, writing furniture, and concealing breakage under layers of kitchen garbage. Suddenly, there were helicopters overhead, bright lights pounding on the door. Well, this won't draw any attention from the neighbors, I thought, still one foot in the world where my serene home was intact. 
I'm sure I barely even noticed Rose and Lucy sitting in the kitchen, crying. Lucy was whispering fervently to her little sister. Rose had a puffy face with snot dripping everywhere. I put on my well-practiced everything-is-fine face, walked purposefully to our front door and opened it, inviting the world of police, paramedics, psych wards, and 72-hour holds into my beautiful craftsman home. The cops came in, one woman and two men. They were nice. I had no complaints about them, but I wanted to exit my own life immediately. They took the girls aside separately to answer their versions of events. I stood in my dining room in my nice house on my nice street and witnessed the slow-motion dissolution of everything I had thought was solid. The shattered glass hidden quickly in the trash can, the broken side chair thrown into the hall closet, images of family violence seared permanently into Lucy and Rose's brains. When they were satisfied there was no imminent danger, and after taking statements from each member of the household, the police left. The girls went up to bed after being assured by us repeatedly that they had done nothing wrong. Then I told Craig he had to leave. The violence was unacceptable. His anger and my betrayal were too much for us as a couple that night. The house could not contain the combined pressure of our conflict, the girls' fear, and all the crazy. The thing is, even then, I thought I was okay. I still believed I could handle it, handle Nick, if everyone would just give me complete control. I sat in our bedroom and watched Craig's headlights as he move across the trees as he left. Years later, the teenage Rose hurled the pent-up accusation to me. The police came to our house, Dad left, and the next day you acted like nothing had happened. You never even mentioned it again. She was not wrong. I crumpled at the density of those words. What had all my posing and play-acting done to her? What had it done to our relationship? What had it done to her opinion of me? And so we returned to the pools. The pool rose almost drowned in, the one full of unimportant concerns in which I could no longer afford to float, the ominous liquid world into which Nick was dissolving, the cold, lonely one in which I now see my husband swam. That's it. You know, uh, that that uh, passage, which is so, I, I feel like I'm there at hearing it. It was a hard one to write, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. And so laid bare. And it made me want to talk with you about shame because of of maybe... I almost want to say of all mental illness, I think of schizophrenia as, as the most physical, you know, uh, <laughs> and yet still there's plenty of shame to go around. Uh, oh, there's so much shame. And, you know, there's, there's two things, you know, there's the stigma, which is a kind of shame, too, where people don't even want to admit or talk about it. But there's also a lot of shame. You know, I have a lot of shame. Um, you know, even reading this, it's hard for me because I can't believe that happened in my house. I can't believe my children witnessed that. You know, I can't believe this is my life. But the reason why I wrote it and I'm putting it out there is this is what happens. Serious mental illness unspools a family. And people need to know that... This is part of it, you know, and it's not some hidden thing behind a front door that nobody knows about. 
it it yes. really needs to be talked about and understood and dealt with. And and ironically, I was I was thinking in this in this direction. Ironically, um, the people who are in more trouble than Nick are the people who have a diagnosis like this and they have no one. You know. Even even yeah. with mistakes, it's better to have someone. Uh, a few blocks from my home is an encampment of people who do not have homes, and mm-hmm. um, under the freeway. Uh, and I know there's a lot of mental illness there. I mean, it's just you know they say that fifty percent of the homeless people. Uh, have, have some kind of mental illness. And, you know, this is another big issue. As I you know, got further, uh, you can see in the book when I got more involved in advocating and all of that. You know, in our country, they deinstitutionalized and closed all the mental institutions in the 60s, supposedly to transition to having um, community centers and treatment that was more localized. Unfortunately, they closed the hospitals and didn't follow through on the contingency plan. Absolutely. And now, really, yeah, the the prisons are the de facto mental health facilities. It's appalling. And um, the prisons and the streets. And we need to fix that. These people are human beings with as much right to a place in the world, in our society, as you or me or anyone else. And we have turned our back on them. And it needs to be corrected. And it and it's so glaringly obvious reading your book uh, how terribly difficult it was for you and your family to get the kinds of services that would have helped, uh, and how you kind of had to invent and cobble together and you know chewing gum and tape uh, exactly. a situation <laughs> where Nick could even get from one day to the next that just broke my heart because I know that that is not uh, the only unusual thing in that is that uh, you were so diligent, <laughs> you know, that you well, did you know, ultimately. I used, to see, I used to drive by and see the people on the street corners screaming out to nobody. And I would think, where's their mother? Like, how does this happen? Why isn't their mom taking care of them? But now I understand. You know, I mean, I'm a pit bull and I also... You know, I'm educated, and I have some resources, and it almost brought me down. You know what I mean? Right, and I, I do. Been able to cobble together a treatment for him. Now I understand why that guy's standing on the street corner without his mom. She couldn't do it. She couldn't do figure it. it out. And or, uh, you know, at some point I felt as if you you had to make the decision that Nick's staying in your home for sure would just be too dangerous for your other kids. Um, yes, that and was so, a very uh, difficult decision. I'm sure. I, I think you captured how difficult it was and I can well imagine uh, because it's one thing, um, you know, I've had many friends who their kids are using drugs or something and, you know, they kind of have to do tough love. But to me, that's very different from what you had to face, which is that you knew it wasn't anything uh, that he was in control of. It wasn't a choice he was making, but still it couldn't be sustained in your family. And um, 
and there weren't other resources. That's the bottom line point we want people to take away from this. Yes? Yes, absolutely. You know, we need mental institutions. We need mental hospitals. You know, even the word, I say the word, and I hear the stigma attached to it. But that's because they were in disrepair and they were draconian. We need good hospitals for people with serious mental illness. It's an absurdity. Absolutely. the 21st century in the United States of America, we don't have hospital beds for people with serious mental illness. I mean, there are people who need to be in a hospital for the rest of their life. For sure. Let's take another break and come back to that in a few minutes. Listeners, okay. again, you can go to the Good Grief host page to find me. Weatheringgrief.com is my website. And to find Miriam Feldman and her book, www.miriam-feldman.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Miriam Feldman talking about her book, He Came In With It. And before the break, Miriam, we we were both getting quite emotional about the lack of the lack of resources for people who are struggling um, with mental illness of all kinds, but particularly I think um, people who I don't know. I almost want to say can't pass, um, who who really experience a lot of danger out in the world because their brains just don't operate like other people. And uh, I know that the extreme, the most extreme symptoms with Nick appeared to me to be the first few years. Would you say that's true? Yes, and you know, now that I'm this far into it and I, I know anecdotally so many people's experiences, 
it can be so much worse than what I've went through. You know, people, the, the suffering and the, the damage to people's lives, it can be just mind-boggling. And the, the other thing I'm just really uh, touched by is this sense that everyone's, and this fits with kind of, better or worse scenarios, I suppose, that every once in a while Nick sort of peeks through. There's a part in your book I'd love for you to share now that that kind of shows a peak, you know? Um, right. And uh, I mean, that's both heartbreaking and also wonderful that, that you can see that he's still in there. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, would, you, would you share that? Sure. One afternoon when I was working in my studio, Nick arrived. The job I was doing involved an interlocking arrangement of stencil designs requiring math, my nemesis. He stood by. Just let me get this part figured out and then we'll go in the house and get your stuff, I told him. He stared blankly at the desk. I measured, cut, tried to fit the pieces together. Damn it, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. He walked over to the desk. Look, Mom. He reached over and picked up the stencil board. I think this is the problem. I got up and he sat down. See, if this side is eight inches and the other one, then the other one needs to be 12. That way the curves will line up. He was right. Whoa, that's perfect, I said. Can we get my stuff now? He said, and this is why I can't give up. I live in a state of constant tension between moments of lucidity and the unknowable. Is he crazy or isn't he? It's like loving someone who is in a coma but wakes up occasionally to have a conversation with you. Schizophrenia is bespoke for each person. On the radio, I heard a college professor who had schizophrenia talk about her life. A college professor? How can that be? Why can't Nick be a college professor? I'm incensed by his foreclosed life. Nick walked out to Craig's workshop. He loped towards the house. Our secret garden, cultivated over many years, was green and thriving, even in the dead of winter. The archway Craig had designed to mirror the pitch of the house's roof was covered in white roses. Nick paused at the back porch to meet Buster, our dog. He didn't touch or greet him, never spoke to him, just stood in quiet communion. He went into the house, and a minute later, he came out with a napkin flat on his open palm. On the napkin were two dog biscuits. Buster jumped all around like a screwball, but knew to keep a distance until Nick gently placed the napkin into his bowl. A whole bunch of birds alighted on the telephone wires, squawking loudly. We went inside. I made him a sandwich. He took his medicine. Thanks for the help with the work, bub. Sure, he said softly as he walked out the door. I watched his large frame as he headed down the street. It was a cloudy day and there were no shadows. That night I went to a local bar on the ground floor of an old hotel all by myself. I wanted darkness and anonymity. Of course, I ran into a girl from the neighborhood. After hellos came the dreaded question, how is Nick doing? He's all right. Can I tell you a story about him, she asked me. Sour beer smell rose from the metal grate along the bartender's side, and I nodded. Remember Nina, she asked. Nina had been a tough little tomboy who was in love with Nick when she was seven and he was nine. She grew up to be a steel-strong swan of a girl. 
The story took place when the neighborhood girl and the swan were about 15 years old. They still idolized Nick. One day, he asked them if they'd like to come hang out in his studio. They were thrilled. They sat surrounded by huge sheets of paper and the detritus of crumbled pastels, crayon, and chalk. Discussing art, politics, and philosophy, they navigated the afternoon. Suddenly, Nick stood up and looked at the swan. Wait, don't move, he said. He walked purposely across the studio until he was directly in front of her. He lightly touched her clavicle. Do you see? Do you know? Look what beautiful shoulders you have. Sitting in the inky bar, the girl explained the importance of that moment. It was the first time in her life that she realized that a man could appreciate a woman, her beauty, simply for the art of it. Nothing salacious, nothing sexual, pure art. She told me it changed the way she saw the world and men from that day on. My crazy son, my insane son, he has changed people's lives. So beautiful. That's another hard one to read. (laughs) Oh, so beautiful. I'm thinking about all of you and the family. Uh, Obviously, Nick's diagnosis changed all of your lives the most of anybody. And I, uh, I know it was really tough. Uh, you had other things happen that were very tough. I don't know if you connect them all together or it just was a string, you know, illnesses and rebellion. I and... call it a bad 10 years. That was oh, my the goodness. title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just have to talk a little bit about the other members of your family. How is, how is everyone... Now, I know it's COVID time, which must, must complicate uh, some things, yeah, COVID's certainly. Yeah, not great, but we're good. We're good. Um, the girls are all grown. Uh, my oldest is married and has seven kids. Um, Lucy is, lives in uh, Nashville and is in a good long-term relationship. And Rose, my youngest, is also married. And, you know, um, there's damage, you know. And this is something that I talk about when I talk to NAMI groups and, and do talks is you got to remember the other kids um, because there is a lot of collateral damage, and um, they've worked through it. But I'm very, I, you know, I feel like we have a good, strong, loving family. You know, a terrible thing happened. We went through a terrible time, but we're committed and we love each other. And one of the things that is the biggest comfort to me is, you know, as I go around the country and I talk to moms, the thing that I hear over and over again is the paralyzing fear of what's going to happen when I'm gone, who is going to look after him. And, you know, I don't have to worry about that. I don't even think about it. I don't even have to have a conversation with them. I know that my girls will take care of him and what peace that gives me. Oh, absolutely. And also, just because this this show I do is about the things that change in us when we go through hard times, uh, somehow I have the fantasy that everyone in your family ultimately probably has a deeper compassion uh, for for people in all kinds of trouble than they might have had. Absolutely. And they're little warriors. I mean... 
boy, do not say anything politically incorrect or negative about mental illness around Lucy because she'll call you right out on it. You know, <laughs> they will go to bat. They're, they're all about making this world enlightened when it comes to mental illness, and they adore their brother. So I guess that that points to the fact that the, the bond of love uh, is extremely hard to break when it's there. Um, that you, know, you said we all loved each other, so we kept going, <laughs> basically. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, this is a thing that usually marriages end up falling apart. You know, I mean, it's very common that that happens. Oh, absolutely. And of course, that happens in, in situations of all kinds of crisis, illness, and um, when kids die, you know, it's very hard yeah. on relationships. And I feel you also capture that quite well, that um, you and your husband, you know, every two parents parent dif differently. But in such extreme circumstances, that really gets high volume, doesn't it? But yes, you, it does. You found your way through it, and I imagine. I mean, what could possibly break you when you when you, you <laughs> yeah, get through something one. like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have that feeling? Do you yeah. do you have that feeling? Well, you know, I'm a person who, you know, when I got married, I didn't expect. You know, I understand that life takes turns, and you know, and things happen, and. Um, I was serious when I said, I'm going to be with you the rest of my life. And I guess he was, too. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> so, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but it, was, it, was, it also seemed important to me, just the acknowledgement that sometimes you had to give each other kind of a wide berth, uh, which, of course, is true. Oh, very much. I mean, there were in years any where we were, yeah. And I mean, all relationships have that, I think. Right. You, yours was very geographic, um, yeah. you know having two having two homes that you both intermittently shared but also could kind of go to the separate places as as needed uh because mm -hmm. i do think that's that probably ultimately was both painful but it probably helped that you could it was give a saving grace space. yes yeah yeah and so how about nick we have just a couple minutes left. I'd love to hear how he's doing. Oh, we have just a minute well, left. He's actually doing, okay, he's doing, I'll make, give you the quick wrap-up. He's doing quite well right now. We're in the process of transitioning him to a new medication, which I have high hopes for. And he lives in an apartment. In, we live out in the country. So his dad and I are up here on top of the mountain, and he's in the town, and he lives in a sort of a supported housing kind of um, apartment complex. And he has a caregiver who comes every day to give him his meds, which is a great thing that we found here in Washington because mm -hmm. in L.A. I was the one who did everything. And he started painting again in this last year. Oh, so that's fantastic. I'll have mm -hmm. to keep an eye. And and uh, I, I saw a few of his paintings on your website. Quite yes, stunning. Yes, if anybody wants to see well, them, they're on there. Yeah. Time to say goodbye. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me.
Absolutely. And and folks, you can get to Miriam Feldman at www.miriam-feldman.com. Next week, I'll have Jana Lopez to talk about her book, Me, My Selfie and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief and seeing who you are. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening.